Okay, this afternoon we're going to study Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26. And before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, as we sit now and study your word, I pray, Father, that you would bless your holy scriptures to us. I pray, Father, that you would help me to speak and that I would speak according to the wisdom of God, not according to the foolishness of men nor the doctrine of devils. Father, may we be instructed, built up and encouraged. May we be strengthened in faith and made more like Jesus. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all, speak all, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So after a bit of a break, we're back here now with the Gospel of Luke. And we're at that part that people often think of as the Sermon on the Mount because it's so similar to what would have been called what we call the Sermon on the Mount from um, the Gospel of Matthew. But I don't know that it's exactly the same sermon or I don't know that it's the retelling of exactly the same sermon by Luke. Jesus was a travelling preacher. It would not surprise me if the same outlines, the same basic outline was used again and again and again. And... Um, I don't know that we have to consider that these are exactly the same messages because there are actually some significant differences. So I personally reached the decision that when we taught through this, I wasn't going to keep referring to the Gospel of Matthew and saying, for example, you know, in Matthew it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And therefore we understand that Jesus is speaking of spiritual things. I'm not saying that's a wrong approach. It's, it's certainly not a wrong approach. You learn by comparing Scripture with Scripture. But what I'm saying is, if these are not exactly the same occasion and not exactly the same message, and if it's been recorded in this way at this time, well, then let's study it in this way at this time and see exactly what it has to offer to us. The first thing to note is that these comments are addressed to disciples. This is not a general message taught to all the world. Mind you, we proclaim to all the world. Mind you, if there were unbelievers here, I'd be teaching exactly what I was going to teach. I, I wasn't going to be changing the message for anyone else. But Jesus is addressing his disciples. And if he's addressing specifically his disciples and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, well, then it's obvious that everything he is saying is being said relative to discipleship. It's being said relative to the life of a believer following in the steps of Jesus. If we don't want to read it that way, well, you know, let's just say, for example, let me ask the question. 
Look at the first two blesseds. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. So is Jesus saying that any poor person who dies of starvation is automatically gaining entry into heaven? And, you know, that's... If, if, if you sort of want to try and ignore the context of the fact that Jesus is speaking to his disciples with regards to discipleship, well, that's where it forces you to go. And no one is saved, no one enters into the kingdom simply because they are literally poor and hungry. And that is why this teaching, for example, is not to be tried to fit comfortably in with some worldly philosophy of socialism, Marxism, or, um, you know, what's being called these days equality. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Now, in, in the scriptures, throughout all of the scriptures, the wealthy evil man is, is, is indeed a common, um, a common example of humanity. There are plenty of wealthy evil men. And God usually brings them to to their end. But wealthy, righteous men are also not unknown in the scripture. King David had a lot of money and he was counted as righteous. Abraham, we, we were studying Abraham this morning when it came time to buy that little bit of land and 400 shekels of silver was required. Now, I didn't live in those days and I can't say I understand exactly what the economy of those days was, but it sounds to me like that was quite a significant quite a significant price, and he didn't hesitate. Bring the silver, bring the scales, weigh it out. I've got 400 shekels of silver on hand. No problem. Let's buy it. The wealthy, righteous man is indeed a real thing in Scripture. So if we just want to sort of read this as as um, at its most literal, worldly level, I think we're obviously missing something. This is being addressed to disciples and it's addressed to disciples concerning discipleship. And when you read it in that context, you suddenly realise that what you're being told is that your life as a Christian is in no way like the life of the world or a career of worldly advancement. You know, we have in our world today what you'd call a very common progression from childhood to adulthood and you know I'm not now talking about sort of the crazies but I'm sort of talking about what you might call the typical middle class upper middle class progression of life you go to school you study you go on to university you study even more you secure yourself a good career you start working you start working your way up through the system you start increasing your income you start to buy real assets like land etc 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 and along the way you get wealthier and wealthier and um, you become increasingly comfortable, find a spouse, have your children, raise your children in the same conditions, and the process is repeated again and again. You know, that's sort of the very common thing. And look, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just go straight out and say it, where a lot of Christians these days are losing their children is they're trying to follow that pattern step by step, word by word for word, that, you know, that they're, um, they're, they're educating their children in the world's system, in the world's wisdom. They're expecting their children to do extremely well and 
because they have been diligent enough parents to raise well-behaved and intelligent children, they do do very well in the world, but all the while their world is getting filled with all kinds of uh, stuff and uh, nonsense which does not come from the Word of God and cannot be brought under the authority of the Word of God because it's devilish and evil. These children go off, they get careers, they get wealthy, or they go off the tracks or whatever might happen. In the end, they're not disciples. You know, I... I I can I can think of you know just one family in particular they they've they've raised I think six children only one of them walks with the Lord the parents are both highly qualified intelligent career professionals who make some 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 profession of faith by the way you know it's not for me to judge I'm I'm not here saying they are or they are not Christians honestly I do not know them well enough but I do know that only one of their children is in regular church attendance and doing all the things that you would expect of someone who was seriously and solidly a Christian. Only one. And they've got highly educated children who've gone through the system and are on that career path. This has all been turned on its head in the light of discipleship. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. If you're one of my disciples, Jesus is saying, and if Following me and obeying me does not bring you advancement in the world. You're blessed. You're blessed. If, if you're not one of the great ones of the world, if people are not thinking that the way you're going is the way you ought to go, he's saying you're blessed for yours is the kingdom of God. In other words, this blessed one is a person who basically feels the commandment to be Christ-like, to follow after Christ and to take up their cross so diligently that they actually don't do well in the eyes of the world. They don't become wealthy. They don't have a great and successful career. In, in the eyes of the world, they're nobodies and they're fools. But in the eyes of the Lord, this turning from the world, this following after Jesus, you know, that picture that picture from Pilgrim's Progress of the man with his back to the world, a book in his hand, and he's racing towards the kingdom of heaven. He's got the best of books in his hand. That's the picture, all right? And that man, as you read Pilgrim's Progress, well, he was despised. He was despised by the world around about him. Yet he's the one that enters into the kingdom of heaven. He's the one that is beloved. If discipleship makes you poor, you're blessed. If discipleship denies you opportunity in the world, you're blessed. You know, if, 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 if your obedience to Jesus holds back your success in the world, you're blessed. I mean, if you're, a, if you're a, for example, a school teacher in the state system and you're a Christian, for any serious, solid Christian, they're getting very close if they're not already there to that point where they say, I can no longer walk in this system. I can no longer compromise with this government. I can no longer compromise with the muck that's coming down from on high that I'm supposed to be pouring into children's heads. If they're not already there, they will get there very, very soon and they'll be dropping out of the system. And if they don't, well, they're not taking the choices that might make them poor in the sight of the world. They're compromising for the sake of career, for the sake of comfort. I mean, let's face it, a state-employed school teacher, what a career. You're on a guaranteed path of advancement. You can't lose. But in terms of the doctrine and the knowledge that you've now got to teach and pass on to be a teacher in the state system, 
You're not much of a disciple. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Once again, this is speaking to disciples. What would a disciple hunger for? Okay, basically the Apostle Paul speaks in many places of the fact that as long as he's got some fairly simple things, a bit of clothing and a bit of food, and the worst of the weather is kept off his head, he's perfectly happy. You know, it... If if uh, if there's a blessing in being hungry, literally hungry, how come we don't just stop eating? You know, it's because we know that's not what it means. It's because we know there's more to it than just simply not having food in your belly. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. What what should be at the at the depth of our desires as disciples? Turn to. Um, Psalm 17. Psalm 17. It's the psalm of a believer who's, who's being put through the testings of life, who's waiting for vindication for their faith in God. They're um, being tested, etc., etc. They call upon God for an answer. They ask God would keep them as the apple of their eye. They speak of the wicked people that they're confronted with in their lives. Look at verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to infants. So here he's talking about that completely worldly career person. They're getting everything they want in the world. They're leaving children behind them. The children are getting the benefit of their of their treasure. But look at what this believer's desire is. Verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. What's his greatest desire? To behold the face of the Lord in righteousness, to awaken and be satisfied with the Lord's likeness. What's the exact wording in the New King James? Yeah, to, to be satisfied with, with the likeness of God, the image of God. Remember, man and man was originally created in the image of God, and now this believer longs for the day when once again he'll be in the image of God. What do we hunger for? We hunger for the presence of God. We hunger to worship at the feet of our Saviour. We hunger to be resurrected into our resurrection bodies. We hunger to, to live our eternal lives in the presence of God. We hunger to be more like Jesus. We hunger to grow into Christ-likeness. We hunger to be sanctified. You know, I'm pretty sure you, like me, could look at over this previous week, and if we want to be serious about this, we can think of at least 10 times, 20 times probably, where we've just failed completely to be Christ-like, where we've said, thought, whatever, the wrong thing, done the wrong thing. And are you kind of disgusted with yourself? Because there are times when I just look at myself and, you know, in my mind's eye, I look at myself and think, you, you fiddly little idiot, you know, you, you silly little clown. You're, you're a servant of God. You're a child of God, saved through the blood of Jesus, and here you are spoiling your sanctification 
over these tiny little silly issues about whether or not things go right at work, whether or not the traffic is good, whether, you know, whether or not I, you want to talk to somebody at a party or whatever it might be. You, you spoil your sanctification. You're not hungering for the right things. You're hungering for the wrong things. It's just as well God is gracious. <laughs> you know, it's just as well there's cleansing and even for believers, we speak of being cleansed when we come to the Lord and then there's ongoing sanctification and ongoing cleansing. And every time we come back to the Lord confessing our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You know, I mean, Augustine, the great Augustine, did not have himself baptised till the last days of his life because he had bad doctrine concerning baptism. He was afraid that if he was baptised as a young man, he would sin so badly against God that he would discount his own baptism. Bad doctrine, terrible doctrine there for, for Augustine, many circles called St Augustine. I'm relieved that's not the Christian life that, that Scripture teaches me. I'm relieved that when I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. We, we hunger to be like the Lord. We hunger to walk in righteousness. We hunger to understand the scriptures more clearly. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. My friends, it's out there in front of us. We shall be satisfied. It's out there in front of us. This is the promise of God. If we are hungering for the things that God wants for us, we will be given those things. We shall be satisfied. Praise God. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This is, this is getting at what you would call the sadness of discipleship. Now, what's the sadness of discipleship? Is it all joy? Well, in a way, it is all joy. But there are things that make us weep. There are people we love who have not repented. These things can make us weep. There is, for example, look at our nation. We're Australians. In a way, we love our nation. We really do. You know, a friend once invited me to come to the USA. Come to the USA. There's work for you to do here. And my reply to that friend was, I like your country. I love my country. This is where God put me. It saddens me to see what Australia is today. And even in, in, in terms of my own lifetime, my short life, I can remember 50 years ago what Australia was then. I can remember the streams of cars that used to go to churches, the Sunday school buses that used to pick up kids. And I wasn't even from a church-going family. I, I can remember a different innocent as compared to today. And I know it. when I say innocent, I'm, I'm not talking about technical righteousness or perfect innocence in the sight of God but I'm talking about a nation that was certainly a different nation at that time. In the primary school I went to, there was only one child of a divorced family. Only one. Think of it. It was a different nation. We were a different nation then, and it saddens me to see what we have become today. And it saddens me to see what those who now hold political power in our nation think are good things. From the moral things, where they um, they want to destroy 
all Christian morality. They hate the law of God. They hate the righteousness of God. They hate the commandments of God. I mean, you and I sit here and we say it's just so obvious what the basis of happiness is. We, we see what you might call happy Christian families. I'm not claiming that any of them are perfect, but we see them. My own family's not perfect, but I'm happy to say I believe we're a happy Christian family. You know, it's a mother, it's a father, they love one another, they have respect for one another, they treat one another in a godly way, they raise their children according to godly principles with godly godly righteousness and laws in mind, and you can just see the happiness, the, the things that they enjoy to do together, the laughter that they have in their household, the, the fellowship that they have around a table. And then you look at the rest of our nation. You know, you look at these crazy destructive kids, self-destructive, destructive of everything around them. They're not happy. You know, if, if um, Christianity is such an oppressive and, and wicked thing, please tell me, please show me where this teaching of secular atheism has brought forth a flood of happiness. You know, where has it, where has it done the world of good for somebody? Because I don't know the place. But I can take you to many a family where the word of God has done a power of good and has brought about blessedness and happiness. And I weep over these things. And then there's, you know, not just their, their, uh, their, their policies, their, their ideologies concerning what we might call morally, moral righteousness, but even the way that they consider that they should govern with their view of themselves as being in some way elite and knowing what is best for everybody around them to the extent that the people around, that the people over whom they rule should not be given free choice should not be given freedom of speech and expression they think they know what's best for you and i you know and they they make these decisions based on their own self confidence we are the elite we have the knowledge. We have the expertise. And if necessary, we're such good people that we're going to step into your lives and save you from yourself. Now, I like to hear that from God. God steps into our lives and saves us from ourselves through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's really good. But when a person starts to talk that way, they're setting themselves up as God. They're trying to make themselves God and put themselves on the throne. The fact that these people have power in our nation, I honestly do at times weep over it. I weep over the direction that Australia is headed in. I, I, it's just, but the Lord says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And what about when the conviction of sin drives us to weeping? drives us to tears? What about when we know we've done wrong so badly that it hurts? Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Let's read on, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Doesn't feel like a blessing at the time that it's happening. No one likes to be the odd one out. No one likes to be the last person picked in the footy team. No one 
you know, no one likes to be the one that no one could care less whether you attend the party or not. You know, you, you can think of a hundred different metaphors to express what I'm getting at. None of us like it. None of us like it when people hate us because we won't compromise to be friends with them. None of us like it when we feel like we're being cut aside for no other reason than we're Christians and we take it seriously. None of us like it when we're called idiots and fools because of our faith. Notice Jesus says, on account of the Son of Man. Just That's just another little indicator that he's speaking to disciples. You know, there are people who are hated and excluded for other reasons, but Jesus is talking about being blessed when these things happen on account of the Son of Man. Blessed are you when people hate you. Now, think about it. In the direction that this nation is going, which I've already spoken of, could you imagine the day might possibly come when the government decides that people like you and I ought not be allowed to have any public input whatsoever? Because they're certainly heading in that direction. They're certainly heading in that direction. You know, there have been cases where employers have been able to either gag or fire employees for saying things in public that are Christian. My friends, unless God grants an almighty revival, troubles are coming and it's going to get worse. But we're told rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Now, you don't really feel like rejoicing and it doesn't necessarily make you feel happy as it's happening. But I think the point that Jesus is making is if as a disciple in walking after me, in taking up your cross, you are separated from the world, though it might be painful, rejoice. This is evidence of your faith. This is assurance of your salvation. This is this is giving you the certainty of heart that I have saved you and I have transformed you. This is, this is the proof that you indeed are walking after me. You're following me. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying. And as I said, look, I don't know many people that dance and rejoice because things aren't going well, but the Lord Jesus is telling us that our reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. People love false prophets. You know, we're a small congregation, but the big congregations, they're the congregations that tell people by faith, you can have your breakthrough. You can have your career. You can have your income by faith. You will make investments and they'll multiply by six times in value. And what's more, don't forget, if you put $1,000 in the plate, I promise you the Lord will give you 7000 back over the next six months. And on and on they talk. And they make all these crazy words of prophecy. You've got nothing to worry about. Everything's okay. Jesus loves you just the way you are. Don't worry about repentance. Don't worry about anything like that. Just rejoice in the goodness of God because it's all yours. Hold out your hands and you'll get it. Yeah, people want to hear that stuff, right? When, 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 when Bible-believing teaching is being shut out of every public um, outlet, the false prophets will still be teaching away. Okay, the, 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 the pathetic liberal churches that are filled with lies that, that, that have made their ministry to sugarcoat the pathway to hell, they'll still be ministering and no one will be going near them. And they'll say as they please and they'll put, they'll, they will blame us for our own stupidity and ignorance and they'll be saying things to the world like, look, 
I'm a Christian and I'm quite happy to practice homosexual marriage. I don't know what's wrong with those people. I think they're just bigots. Stuff like that. Well, rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So the blessings are not what you would expect, especially to a nation of people. Now, remember, he is preaching in a Jewish context to his disciples who are Jewish. And it was a very common belief in the day that when all goes well, it is obviously going well because God is blessing you. And if things are not going well, they're not going well because God is punishing you. The old book of Job fallacy is alive and well. It's alive and well throughout the religious world today. But the old book of Job fallacy, when things go wrong, they must have gone wrong because you're a bad person. Jesus is basically saying, no, that's not the way it is at all. What you are to do is that you is you are to follow after me. And if following after me is hard, you know that you are one of the blessed. He now goes to the woes, and the woes are not what you would expect. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's... um. Paraphrase it. Woe to you if you feel right at home in the world. Everything's going right. You would like to pretend that you're a disciple. You claim that you're one of my followers. But the truth of the matter is that it's basically all feel-good religion. And everybody thinks you're a nice person. Woe to you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Woe to you who are rich. Now I've pointed out. There can be righteous Christians who have wealth. But he says you have received your consolation. So they actually, this was what they wanted. This was what they wanted. It was it was their aim. It was their desire. It was what they were working for in all their lives. They got their wealth. And Jesus is saying they're not true disciples. Their, their first aim all along was wealth. Their first aim all along was comfort. Their first aim all along was a place in this world. Woe to them. They'll get what they ask for. Now, think of this. There's a price in saying that you belong to Jesus. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. When you claim to be a Christian, you're taking the name of Christ to yourself. There's a price to taking the name of Christ to yourself. And those who make false profession and would like to walk among the people of God and would like to be called Christians, though they themselves are not willing to suffer anything for the kingdom of God. Well, hey, life on this world might be very good for them, but this is their only consolation. The Lord is saying you don't have anything to hope for in eternity. What you're getting out of this life is all you're going to get. This is to the false, the false disciple. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Now, in, in one place, Jesus described, Jesus described hell as a place where there was famine and hunger. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. If you're satisfied with what you got, if you think you've got all you need, 
if you're if you're not weeping for the kingdom of God, if you don't recognize your poverty in the kingdom of God, if you don't recognize how desperately you need to be made Christ-like, if you're perfectly satisfied with the way things are at this moment, well, that's fine. But you have no eternal future to be looking forward to. You shall be hungry. Too late. Too late. One of the tortures of hell is that the people who are there are going to realise when and where it was that they confirmed their appointment in the fires. They're actually going to know how it was that they sent themselves to that place. And they're going to hunger for the chance to make a change and it will not come their way. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, remember, Luke, uh, Luke, I mean, Jesus teaches the, um, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And remember the rich man, well, he said, uh, send Lazarus over to serve me. Let him give me a drop of water. And Lazarus is on the side of Abraham. He's on the side of eternal life. And Abraham says, oh, no, there's a great chasm between us. He can't come across to you and you can't come back to him. Oh, well, can you send someone from this place back to earth to warn my brothers so that they don't end up in this place? And Abraham replies, even if someone rose from the dead, they won't listen. There's something in that. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now, once again, this is not, I see things that make me laugh. And I don't believe that laughing at things is a sin. Sometimes I laugh at myself and my own foolishness. And, you know, and I find my own failures to be quite funny. I've spent 10 minutes walking around looking for a pair of glasses that were right there on the top of my head like that. If you can't laugh at that moment, you just, you know, what's your problem? I've seen other people in my family do the same thing. There are things in this world that are funny, and I do not believe that there is any sin at all in laughing at some of these things. But these people, their life is nothing other than the idea that I have everything I want. All I need to do is eat, drink, and be merry. I've got all I need. Life's just one enormous holiday. Fun, 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 fun. You shall mourn and weep. Too late. You shall mourn and weep, and you shall mourn and weep too late. Notice when we were looking at the blessings at verse 21. Jesus says, blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who are poor. Now, it doesn't say now, but it's in the present tense. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. This life, now, whilst the grace of God is being proclaimed to all the world, whilst salvation is there for any who would reach for it, whilst God is willing to make himself known through Jesus Christ our Lord, now, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of repentance. Now is the time to turn from our sins. Now. But Jesus is saying, in the future, you shall be hungry, you shall mourn, and you shall weep. 
for them, it's, you know, for them, that day of now, it's too late. You know, salvation doesn't come after death and salvation doesn't come through our deaths. What's the, what's the most commonly taught Christian heresy or pseudo Christian heresy in Australia? I call it salvation by death alone. You go to a funeral and someone's always gone to a better place. Well, how are you measuring better? Do you mean better in terms of someone's gone to where God said they ought to go and that's better? That might be true. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's not a better place if they weren't in Christ. It's not. Salvation by death alone is an evil heresy. You shall be hungry. You shall mourn and weep. And there is no consolation. None. So to those who call themselves the Lord's disciples, he's basically saying, you had better be my disciples. You're walking around here with me in this place called Galilee. You're claiming to be my followers. You're claiming to absorb my teaching. You're claiming to believe what it is that I'm saying. Well, it better be true. It better be true because if it's not, you shall mourn and weep. You shall be hungry. Basically, he's leaving them in that state for all of eternity. People talk about hell. They talk about the way hell is described in the scripture. Is it literal? Is it a picture, a metaphor? Well, look, it might be literal as far as the language goes. I could accept that. But somehow or other, I think the language does not go far enough. Imagine an eternity of hungering for salvation knowing that it's too late. Imagine eternity of mourning and weeping over your sins and knowing that it's too late and there is no forgiveness. You get in the picture? You know, the fires of hell, the worm, the worm that turns, that, that never rests, etc., etc. Imagine an eternity of this spiritual anguish that these people will undergo knowing that they're there because it's the judgment of God that has put them there and they justly deserve it and there is no future other than misery. Unending, not ceasing. You shall mourn and weep. Verse 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I don't know how many ministries there are, but I know that there are many. There are so many ministries in the world today based on the idea that if we make this all attractive to the people around about us, if they think we're really cool, nice people, wow, we'll make an impact. And, and, and in those ministries, ultimately, they describe becoming a Christian as nothing other than the easiest and smallest of changes where basically you've just got to say you believe in Jesus and everything will start to go right. And those ministries are highly spoken of. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Now think, for example, of a ministry that looks good in the eyes of the world. And now I'm thinking of the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army, it started off a parachurch ministry, ministering especially to people on the streets, to drunks, to outcasts, to prostitutes. There was a very strong, clear gospel message preached there. What is it now? Now, you know, if someone wants to tell me, look, I know this Salvation Army minister and he's genuinely a Christian and he's genuinely doing great work, well, good for him. 
Praise God. But I'm telling you that in most Salvation Army churches in this country today, the gospel is not preached. It's a gospel of works. It's a gospel of niceness. It's a gospel of give, 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 give. No one is called to repentance. That's just the simple fact. And what do you know? But if you talk about Christian ministries, the world will speak well of the salvos. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. You know, if you, if you want to have a church that people aren't going to attack, basically you've got to do away with the offence of the gospel. The offence of the cross, you've got to do away with the preaching of the righteousness of God, you've got to do away with the preaching of the judgment of God, you've got to do away with the preaching of the exclusive claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want a ministry in which people speak well of you, you've got to tell them what they want to hear. And they want to hear that they're good people, that they're loving people, that everybody's happy with them and you've got nothing to worry about. You've got your rewards now and you're going to have more rewards in the future. That kind of ministry, people will speak well of. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Think of the false prophets in the Old Testament. Think of Jeremiah, almost besieged, as it were, by false prophets. Jeremiah speaking the truth, the false prophets speaking the lies. Jeremiah is the one who ends up in the pit, in the mud at the bottom of the old system. People want to have their ears tickled. People want to hear lies. People want to be told that there's nothing to worry about. Everything's okay. It's all just going just fine. You can trust everyone around about you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. So the scripture tells us these things. I mean, when we look at what's being taught here in in this sermon from Jesus, I just want to give you, for example, some uh, verses of scripture from the Old Testament. I'll, I'll read them with you. If you want to try and turn to them as I'm reading them off, go for your life. But Psalm 7 verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. Establish the righteous whose minds and hearts God has tested. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 107 verse 9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Book of Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. The Lord providing their needs on the mountain of the Lord in the day that the Lord gathers his people. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The Lord is high, lifted up, dwells in a high place and he revives the spirit of the contrite and the lowly. Psalm 60, I mean, Isaiah 61, 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Is what Jesus was teaching new? It was new in that he brought it out with such clarity 
and such openness. It was new in that Jesus had this amazing command of the word of God, which is what you would expect. He's God, the eternally begotten Son of God, having taken upon himself flesh and being empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, to to do this, to uh, draw out and apply the meaning of all scriptures. But in a way, it's not new. This is the message that God has been sending into the world from the beginning, that the people who walk with God can expect testing and trials, that the world is filled with sin and wickedness, that if you want to obey God, you will not have a place in the world. At least not in this age. So my friends, I often find as I read, for example, this passage, that I wonder if truly I'm a disciple. Because sometimes it seems to me that although we, we, we come to church and we worship, we study the word of God, It seems to me at times that um, we're not being tested thoroughly enough. But honestly, I think maybe we should just be happy that the Lord has given us a time of blessing in which we can live. Because if he chooses to, he can bring us into a time of testing as easily as anything. Just because you're in a time of blessing does not mean you're not a disciple. And remember this, we as Christians, we're still standing on the shoulders of those who came before us and Our nation was once you would call it a Christian nation established in and upon the word of God. And in a way, we're still walking in that blessing. The day might come when a passage like this becomes indeed our daily experience. And if that day comes, well, I pray the Lord keeps us strong and faithful and obedient. It's it's well within the realms of possibility. In the meantime... We are what God has made us. We're in the place that God has put us. And the testings and the trials and the battles that come our way, they are sufficient. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we do thank you that we have good things in this life, even here and now. We thank you for love and for family, for fellowship, for worship, for Christian rejoicing, for the joy of our lives. We thank you, Father, that we know you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we have been drawn to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you for your word, the Holy Scriptures. Father, no matter what comes our way, no matter what trials and testings you have for our lives, help us to be faithful, help us to be courageous, help us to be obedient, help us to be truly disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.